I would say I'm not used to that work. Hello, so glad you tuned in for our fourth episode, in which I speak to our Bergen fella, Chantal Kobel, the woman who said she couldn't possibly talk about her work for a full hour. Well, watch us hit that 60-minute mark and wave at it in the rearview mirror. We're talking about medieval brain balls, about editing, and about the suitability of the early Irish sagas for a proper Netflix show. Bon tapnavas! Hello and Valtjaresh on our fourth episode of Nianza, the SES Research uh, Podcast. And today I have with me Chantal Kobel, uh, who is the Bergen Fellow at the School of Celtic Studies um, and who was nominated by Anne-Marie O'Brien, who was our guest on the third podcast. (laughs) Yes. And Chantal is a Celticist as well. You won't be surprised to hear this. Um, But she also dabbles in codicology and what that means precisely we'll probably hear Uh, in a few seconds Um, and she's a lecturer at Maynooth University as well where she teaches uh, paleography so you're very welcome Chantal. Thank you very much Nika. How are you uh, doing? (laughs) I'm a bit nervous but I'm very happy to be on your podcast and delighted to have been invited and uh, well done on a great podcast. Oh thanks (laughs) it's good to have you here it's so uh, as I was saying to you before it's just such a privilege for me to uh, sort of just um uh, ask you guys everything I want to know about your research yeah. and then hoping just other people will find it interesting as well but it's well, just yeah. a, <laughs> it's great it's for me. It's a relaxed environment to do it in and yeah, it yeah. kind of opens up the doors to people that mightn't otherwise come in. Yeah it? that's what we hope uh, anyway yeah. yeah so so you're very welcome on the ANZA uh, and uh, we're hoping you'll you'll explain your research to us so that we'll think Nianza. Uh, as well by the end of it so you know I will ask you questions in Old Irish um, yeah. uh, so you don't have to reply in Old Irish thankfully uh, because I think that yeah, <laughs> that would scare a lot of us away um, and me uh, yes yeah. <laughs> um, so the first question is what is your name and what brought you here? Well, that's a spiel question. Yeah, it's a it's a broad <laughs> question as well. So take it away. <laughs> um, so my name is Chantal Kobel, and I am a Bergen Fellow at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. And I, uh, it's been a long road to get here. <laughs> yeah. Where, where did you? Because you're obviously very interested in. Celtic stuff, uh, yep. Irish stuff mainly. So how did yep. your how did you start to become interested? Because we were talking to Christina, of course, and and Michal and Emery, and they mm-hmm. had kind of different stories. So Christina and Michal said they came across it in school, and they were instantly mm-hmm. sort of fascinated by these things, also because their teachers were really cool. But then Emery, for example, said she only came to it later because in school she had really no interest in. Irish and it was just when she started seeing these manuscripts that she became yeah. interested so how did that happen for you? Uh, well I suppose 
going back way back <laughs> yes that's what we um, do here yeah <laughs> i i i'm not originally from ireland i came to ireland when i was about seven um and we moved to clare and um, so the limerick side of clare and i think from that from that point on my parents trying to fit into the country mm. and get to know the culture and learn the language and um, we're from switzerland originally uh, we didn't have or my parents didn't have english so and to get to know about the history of ireland we drove around ireland quite a bit around oh, that's Clare, so nice yeah uh, down to connemara or up to connemara down to Kerry. yeah <laughs> and uh so like i think you know from quite a, from that age I was it was impressed on me the beauty of the landscape oh, uh, wow. and yeah. the history like it go, went back so far I, I didn't know anything about, like that could exist so mm. it was quite magical for a seven-year-old to see Poolnabrone and Clare, Cahir uh, Macnachton you know all these castles and uh, ruins and uh, my mother <laughs> She would kill me for saying this. Put me, uh, she she enrolled me in a, an all Irish school. That's very brave for people coming very, to Ireland to just yeah. uh, throw the, throw your kids into the deep end. <laughs> and uh, she's like, "Yeah." So the story is, we went into the principal's office, and the principal's like, "You know, like you've barely any English, and this is an all Irish school. Do you think your daughter will have a problem?" And and then it's like, I oh, know she'll be grand. <laughs> <laughs> That's very Irish, though. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think from that point on, you know, that there was a, a an encouragement at home mm. you know, for um, appreciating the Irish language and the history and the landscape. Um, but then I actually I I really enjoyed primary school. We had great teachers and. Um, I went to an English-speaking secondary school then, but I had great Irish teachers. Uh, um, again, the great teachers. Yeah, Bonnie Dochertig. <laughs> Shout uh, out here. Oh, she was great. She used to wear her cape to the class. She'd oh, cycle really? school with her big cape, black cape on. <laughs> <laughs> She's like totally eccentric, but, uh, you know, all those things make an impression on a young person. And, yeah. and she loved... Peg, she loved, you know, all poetry, Martin O'Dira and all of those things. Oh, and, that's lovely. Uh, so, yeah, so that made a big impression. And then I did the leaving cert and it was always kind of said, well, Chantal, you're you're very good at languages. You should go and do languages. So I looked around and I saw this course in Trinity, Early and Modern Irish, and I put that down along with a few other things. And <laughs> <laughs> I was a bit stubborn. Now, a bit of a rebel so I was offered that course but then decided I didn't want to do it and I oh, went really? off for a few <laughs> years and went down a few cul-de-sacs right and eventually copped on as a mature student at about 23 and went to actually I probably should have gone and done that course oh really yeah That's kind of, so, so it, went, it kind of stayed in the back of your mind during that it, time or yeah it was always in the back of my mind I oh think. that's lovely yeah and uh, so I went back then at 23 and got the course. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, so my degree, my primary degree is early modern Irish in Trinity. That's lovely. And, yeah. Uh, loved, loved that. Yeah. Brilliant course and uh, made a huge impression 
so much so that <laughs> I stuck with the old Irish and um, you get a choice between uh you know uh, majoring in old Irish or modern Irish all right yeah um between third and fourth year so what made so. you choose old Irish rather than modern Irish um because of course obviously modern Irish would probably lead to more I don't know more chance of employment or you know because you can become yeah. a school teacher or a guard or yeah anything I did really. I didn't want to be a school teacher. Well, that's a good reason. <laughs> uh, I think school teachers are great. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, but it's ah, just but it's a tough job. Right. It's I'm not for everyone. Yeah. yeah, I can't. And I did try a few stints at it, and I was just really awful. <laughs> uh, doing a bit of sub teaching. So for me, old Irish was great because you could go back to the beginning. Mm. you know you could I mean you can you were taught how to read tales and manuscripts yeah. you were taught the basic elements in a sentence and kind of they give you the the building blocks on how to translate yeah you know, Christina was talking about parsing yes uh, you know so you're given all those critical skills so that you can then go off and and look and pull up a manuscript image and, and go oh yeah I can read that mm. um, well with the help of certain things you know of you course know, just, <laughs> I'm the, not fluent yes <laughs> <laughs> I think there are very few people who are fluent in old Irish uh, yeah it's definitely one of my life goals but uh yeah yeah but like I remember one my first mem like one of my first memories of uh, a lecture was Damien McManus, Professor Damien McManus coming in and he was carrying the facsimile of the Book of Leinster. All right. With him, right? And he comes in and he whacks it down on the table. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, right, by the t end of four years, you're going to be able to open any page and read that. And I was like, oh, wow, well, wow. You know, that's impressive. <laughs> that's very impressive. Yeah. Also, just yeah. as a side note, can you briefly explain again what the Book of Leinster is? <laughs> So the Book of Leinster is a, uh, a medieval Irish manuscript, uh, which is dated to the end of the 12th century-ish. Um, mm. It's written by a few different people, but within that it contains the stories, um, you know, like the Tornbo Cunha, yeah. uh, saga literature, um, genealogies, poetry, Dinhanachus. Um, Lovely, so yeah. And nice name, Laura. If you say a facsimile of a manuscript... Uh, what does that entail exactly? So I think it was just uh, for long on now I might be completely wrong here but yeah. anyway um, they they it's a replica of the original right yeah in, yeah, yeah. in, in you know it's been written out by another person yeah. but I think it was the late 18th or 19th century sorry so it's basically uh, from the time before we could go to isos in our pajamas as we discussed exactly. in the previous episode and look up yeah. all these manuscripts online it was to help make all these manuscripts more accessible to yeah. scholars I suppose all over the yeah. the world yeah and they're quite big like manuscripts as you well know come in all sizes but uh, mm. some facsimiles are are really quite big so I can see how yeah. you could whack them on a table really well <laughs> to yeah, impress your that's, students it's a good way to make a first impression of yes <laughs> definitely <laughs> and it definitely beats the spider killer that uh <laughs> Yourself and me, all we're talking about. And yes, yes, like indeed. <laughs> yeah. So then, after your degree in in old Irish at Trinity, did you do a PhD there, or did you go somewhere no, else? 
I was encouraged to go and experience uh, university life in a different institute. Oh, right. Um, yeah. And not to become institutionalized, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and uh, just, I know my colleagues went to Marburg, but just out of personal reasons, I was a bit older and I kind of had to fund myself. So I stayed in Ireland mm. and I thought, well, you know, what if, I know my end goal was I wanted to do a PhD, but I was also told that you mightn't get a job for a very long time <laughs> if you do a PhD. We do know how to sell these things as academics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, we all seem to be a bit blind to the fact that you mightn't get a job because we love what yes. we do so much. Yeah. Do you know, it's that yeah. secondary. Um, but I did. So with that in mind, I did kind of want to have a plan B. Yeah. And what could I do? So, you know, during the degree, I, I fostered a love of manuscripts and, and our primary sources. So I thought, well, maybe I can carry that into a profession. Um, mm. So I went to UCD and I did a master's, a taught master's in archives and records management. Oh, very interesting. Here. Yeah. And that was fantastic. Um, a completely different ballgame to doing a degree and mm. a PhD, which I learned afterwards. Uh, in some ways, it was nearly <laughs> easier. Like masters was so intense. You know, within eight or nine months, you're trying to learn as ah, much yes. as you can. You have to write a thesis on top of that. But anyway, oh, and we were the first year that it was a master's oh, program. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Like, upgraded from a diploma, so we were kind yeah. of guinea pigs. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, but it, that was brilliant. So in that in that master's, I was able to learn about um, the theory behind archival practice and, um, you know, paleography. I kind of expanded on, on paleography. Um, ah, here we have paleography. What is yeah. paleography? <laughs> um, so paleography is the study of old handwriting. handwriting. Yes. Yeah, and, if you uh, um, if you look maybe on Twitter somewhere or near this podcast somewhere, you can see an image of me and Chantal. And Chantal has very fantastically, as her Zoom background, she has the image of uh, of a manuscript up. <laughs> so if you want to see an example of uh, you know old handwriting and see why you have to study that before you can read it, that's a good example. But uh, yeah, you can of course also go to ISOS and and look at all the the other yeah. manuscripts we have. But uh, yeah, it's definitely yeah. a field in itself. It is, yeah. So much to be done. Yes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Come yeah. back to that. <laughs> yeah. I suppose that's a nice advice maybe as well for uh, if there's any young students or scholars listening to not be deterred uh, to do a PhD by the fact that it's hard to get jo- get a job, but to also think perhaps of a plan B because that's, you know, that's yeah. very sensible advice to not uh, be blinded by this one uh, holy grail, as it were, of, yeah. uh, of a PhD and, and look elsewhere as well. A, yeah, although yeah. I am very jealous of me, Helen Christina. <laughs> so, I w- you know, if I could relive my life, and yes. uh, I would go and do my degree with a team. <laughs> right, <gone>. yes. <laughs> Marburg, but life doesn't work that way, no. I suppose. Um, so the other great thing about doing that master's was I was able to make colleagues with the people who work in 
right ah, yes, yeah. and one of the first jobs I had was working um I got a job with Siobhan Fitzpatrick in the Royal Irish oh, Academy wow. Library yeah and I worked on a collection and this kind of comes full circle and maybe we'll come back to it later I think and um, but the collection I worked on was a correspondence of Reverend Charles Graves and John O'Donovan and I think it was someone else and uh, so Charles Graves was one of the people who lobbied the the Irish government saying oh the Brehan Law manuscript uh, need to be transcribed all oh, right and yeah so, uh, he got john o'curry uh, eugene o'curry and john O'Donovan um, to transcribe that material um but yeah so it's kind of funny because it all interlinks yeah yeah because yeah. yeah. you think you're learning different uh, trays as it were but they're all connected really and i see yeah they kind uh, of come together in a nice way yeah and then the other thing was, oh, that was great, was I went, and my thesis focused on the transfer of the uh, Franciscan Library um, in Kalini, the transfer of the Irish language manuscripts to uh, UCD and oh, kind that, of how that came about and all that. What an that. amazing project. Yeah, I don't know where that thesis is now. Oh, uh, can you tell <laughs> us a bit more about that um, um, for people who, who might not be familiar with the Franciscan manuscripts? Um, yeah, and um, the Franciscan, you know them well yourself. I you do indeed. Well, on them close, yes. close to your yeah. heart. <laughs> the text I work on, the Fela de Angus, is uh, contained in one of these manuscripts. It's Franciscan manuscript UCD A7, if you yeah, want to look it up on ISIS. It is really yeah. beautiful and it has really beautiful initial letters as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, they're close to my heart, the Franciscan uh, manuscripts. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they have a bit of a complicated history, but they're basically uh, a, a collection of manuscripts that came to Kalini through the Franciscans um, from Leuven. Mm. Um, yeah, which is in Belgium, uh, where there was right. an Irish college, right? Yeah. yeah and yeah. so they kind of ended up in Leuven from the Eau Claire's and, and the, the kind of transferred over from Ireland. Um, but I think um, the Franciscans uh, had a foresight that they were, you know, all becoming elderly. Yes. Um, yeah. And and how what, what did they foresee for their library in the future? How would it be preserved and kept and used? And mm-hmm. so they were approached by um, UCD and the archivist in UCD uh, to maybe transfer them to the UCD archives where they would still have ownership over them, mm-hmm. but they would be curated and preserved and conser- undergo conservation in UCD and so that's basically what I looked at and uh, I also met John Gillis who's a a senior conservator and so he works on restoring them back to their their, what an amazing original very so cool yeah (laughs) I know you have once uh, (laughs) I know because yeah yeah, we're having a fangirl moment here but I know you you invited him to the institute a while back to give a talk about yeah. the restoration of was it the Fadon Moore Psalter? That's right. Yes, yeah. um, that was such well, an amazing talk as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, sorry. So the <laughs> the Fadon Moore Psalter is uh, was found in a bog. When was that? Two thousand and seven. Yeah, it was a very recent find. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I when I did my masters, I went to interview him in uh, the was the National Museum, the barracks there in near Houston station, can't think of it, gone blank. Anyway, and he had the Fadden Moore Psalter there. 
really working on it while you were oh, interviewing oh my god him. yeah oh, wow. and it was it was still at the stage where the, very early on in the conservation project process where it it looked like a big slab to my untrained eye of right. mud yes in a big box <laughs> like mud or what he described as a badly made lasagna <laughs> right yes <laughs> So, you know, that was so cool. Because yeah. how, it's a very early manuscript, isn't it? Uh, I forget. Uh, yes. Is it 6th, 7th century? Yeah. 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 Just a brief editorial note here. I was suffering from a brain of forgetfulness because the manuscript is, in fact, from 800 AD. Um, so it's a Psalter. Yeah. Um, so very important. And... Um, I think as well what's really cool is that some of the letter forms uh, were they were written in iron gall ink and whatever chemicals are in the iron gall ink kind of ta- were, were ingrained into the vellum so that's all the, all the vellum around it disintegrated so all you're left with are these little letter shapes and you end up with an alphabet soup or a scrabble yeah. you know it's yeah, yeah, yeah it's an amazing find uh and it's a if the I think Ireland, uh, as we're recording this, is back to level three. So I think maybe the museums are open again. So if you go to yeah. the National Museum of History, it's actually there on exhibition and you can see the letter soup, <laughs> as it is yeah. referred to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the way that the vellum sort of integrate disintegrated around it because of the chemicals yeah. of the bog. Yeah, it's a really, yeah. really special uh, exhibition. But anyway, we were on the Franciscan manuscripts when we got distracted by uh, John Gillis's (laughs) amazing work on conservation of manuscripts. (laughs) Yeah, so he was in UCD at the time, was he? For um... he was. Okay. Uh, Well, he was kind of coming in and working on the UCD collection. Oh right, yeah. Yeah, does I think he does work in quite a lot of different um, libraries. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so because of that transfer, yes, we have. There's a really nice collection of Franciscan manuscripts uh, in the UCD library. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that yeah that was my master's in archives, and it's kind of helped me along the way and Mm. have kind of employment in between, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. whatever or doing uh, research projects. So anyway, I ended up back in Trinity for the PhD. (laughs) Yeah, I went back and. I did a, a, a critical edition, prepared a critical edition of the medieval Irish tale. Right. And yeah, that was tough. <laughs> <laughs> what was the tale you were editing? I edited Adit or Idit uh, Con- Con- and um, so the death tale, the violent death tale, Conchover Macnassa, Connor Macnassa. This sounds so like a great tale. Oh, yeah. Can you give it's us a summary? It's not for breakfast. Okay. If you're having <laughs> breakfast with this podcast, podcast, please pause and come back to us later <laughs> while um, Chantal gives us the summary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yes, it starts with uh, the Ulstermen party. Mm. Um, Amel and Macha. As, as they, they do. do. They're yeah. all, all, all hammered. <laughs> they're all as they also want to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, feasting and so on, and uh, we get Kuholan, Kamalkiarnach, uh, and Loigre and Bwedoch coming out and saying, Oh, let's compare our trophies and uh, see who the best warrior is. Oh, wow. Uh, A recipe for disaster, that. <laughs> yeah. And Kamalkiarnach uh, 
comes along and says, well, I've got a brain ball. What have you got? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what? A brain ball. A brain ball. So in the text, it says it was customary for uh, warriors of that time to behead the their victims <laughs> the mm. slain warriors Lovely. take out their brains and calcify them and then they would display these as their their trophies lovely on the mantelpiece uh, uh, also yeah, don't try this yeah. at home <laughs> please <laughs> and uh so they're comparing trophies and uh obviously Conal wins and it gets put up on the shelf and uh they go off about their business and in the meantime, in the background, uh, Keth MacMoggoch uh, comes along from Ulster, or no, from Connacht, actually, and he's on a circuit around Ulster. And uh, he's described as the most terrible fella okay. <laughs> ever in Ireland. Uh, and he's thundering across the plains and he's swinging uh, three heads around him. You know, so like More heads. <laughs> yeah, you kind of want to go the opposite direction. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sounds like it. And he um, he's coming to make trouble. Hmm. And in the meantime, there's these two jesters and they've overheard that um, the brain ball, this brain ball, actually, who's from a slain um, Leinster king, Mesgegra, um, who Conal Carnock had killed in another tale. Oh, right. The back, back story uh, I can tell you about after. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and he, the, the two gestures get the ball and they're kind of tossing it back and forward. And uh, Keth comes along and he snatches it off them because he knows that it's been forewarned or prophesied that Mesgegra would avenge his own death. Ah, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so Brainball so, is angry. Brainball is angry. So uh, kind of Keth acts as his proxy. Right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he takes it and the he he goes on a cattle raid. This is also a very common occurrence. I think it's been mentioned before in the podcast yeah. as well. Uh, one of the favorite things to do in medieval yeah. Ireland is to go on a cattle raid. <laughs> yeah, and the the obviously so there's a big battle between the Ulster men and um, the Connacht men, and Conchcover uh, goes into battle as well. And uh, you know the Connacht women have heard about his absolute beauty and fabulous figure. <laughs> <laughs> And All right. his attire, and oh, he's just the best. So, <laughs> you know, long flowing hair and whatever. So, they ask him, Will you come aside, uh, Connor or Concover, so we can look and admire you? And, and of uh, course, him goes, being oh, a man. Yeah, love to. yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, you can look uh, at me, lovely. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it doesn't say in this, but there's another uh, Neil Newhealock, and he goes off and does the same, except he's in the nude. <laughs> oh, <laughs> see, these anyway, think, medieval Irish people, they weren't prudish. You might think, no. you know, the Middle Ages were a bit, you know, whew, I see an ankle, but that's a, that's a much later development. <laughs> um, and so it, the story then says, well, it was actually Keth who put the Connacht women up to get Conqueror aside. Ah. And while he's distracted, showing himself off, Keth hmm. puts the brain ball in his sling and fires it at Conqueror. All right. 
Yeah, so then he, it's, you know, it strikes the back of its head with such force that two thirds of the brain ball end up mashed into its skull and oh. Tom Hover falls forward from the force of the blow. Yeah. And uh, so the Ulstermen take him away and um, it said in the tale, in the longest version anyway, that that's where he died. But actually what happens is... Uh, it continues so he miraculously stays alive oh, wow. <laughs> in the second half of the tale and his physician uh Fingen, who actually appears in Ashling Owing has said that uh Christina's talking All right. about yeah a lot of intertextuality. <laughs> yeah uh so he could tell you know by looking at the smoke coming out of a house how many people were sick in it and what sicknesses they had Handy. and he says to the ultraman look I can patch up Right. Well, you can either take the brain ball out of his conch over the king's head and he'll die, or I can patch him up and sew him up and you'll have a king, but he'll be blemished. Ooh. Not any good you. This is a big deal in medieval Irish society. And yeah. also going back to the law tracts. I hope actually we can interview someone to talk about Brehan Law at some stage. That would be really interesting. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, the law states that a king must be unblemished, uh, yeah. unblemished physical form. So I can imagine if you have a brain ball sticking out of your head, uh, yeah. it's not looking great for you. <laughs> and like your job. Maybe he, yeah, he tries, Fingen tries to kind of make it work. You know, he's mm. blonde thread, so it'll match his blonde hair. And, oh, that's very thoughtful. But I mean, really, he's useless after that. Yeah. You know? So for seven years, he's there. He can't ride a horse. He can't eat loads of food he can't sleep with women he can't <laughs> uh go into battle you know so he's useless yeah right so after seven years he learns about christ's crucifixion and uh it, there's you know earthquake and the heavens are angry and mm. so on and uh so really at that point you see uh, a change in gear i suppose in the tale and um Conqueror utters a rhetoric or a rusk or uh, how do you explain that to the audience yeah <laughs> uh, i suppose it's a, a type of poetry that's yeah. non-syllabic and it has a lot of ornamentation like alliteration and the word order can be quite complex so you you know the syntax is difficult you might have preposed adjectives coming before the noun rather than after the noun and verbal forms are split uh in the sentence obviously. sounds terrifying yes <laughs> <laughs> i love it uh, yeah, good uh, good good yes <laughs> and, uh, so in 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 that poem there's quite a lot of emotion so he goes from being really angry that jesus has been crucified and he wants to go and avenge his death and fight and all of that mm. but then you know he comes to realize well actually you know jesus sacrificed his life for us and you see this change in come cover coming to the realization well actually you shouldn't go fight you know all right there's no good in, in vengeance and revenge i'll never get to heaven <laughs> right that. yeah 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 um so there's a real change in tone and after that uh, in some other the other versions we hear that the brain ball hmm. because of this anger and whatever falls out of his head and he gets baptized by his own blood also lovely <laughs> lovely <laughs> and a very creative solution to you know uh having to be baptized in ireland where at that time in the story because it's really hmm. sort of 
depicted as a historical novel, there was, of course, yeah. no one to actually baptize people. Uh, yeah. Because there's no but Christian he was, around. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he was one of the first, they say, you know. But yeah. obviously, not to forget that this tale <laughs> was written in a monastic yes. environment. Yeah. Not yeah. pre-Christian or anything like that. No. But it was a way for monks to fit our history into the broader history of the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a sense of belonging and yeah. religion. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Poor Keth. Or, no, sorry, poor Conkover. Yeah, Keth is and a bit of a bad guy Keth. in this. Uh, yeah, he's, <laughs> sticking uh, all his horrible. heads and <laughs> brain balls. He's, uh, he's kind of, there's a lot of bad guys. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which is what like makes it, it so interesting, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, Mascagra, right? So mm. he is the guy whose head is chopped off. But <laughs> the backstory to that is in another tale called Talland Aether. And the siege of Hoth. All right. And Athena, do you know Athena? You know the poet. Yeah. Goes around satirizing people who don't do what he wants. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. So Athena is like he goes around on a circuit, left hand, left clockwise, anti-clockwise in yeah. Ireland, <laughs> which is bad anyway. And he's going around making these mad demands off everyone, and they're all like, "Oh God, we better do it because he'll satirize us." Right. So, for example, he asks one guy, "Oh, um, who?" Maklukta, I think, who only has one eye. Right. To Athena asks Echo to give him his eye. <laughs> oh, that's so pretty mean. Yeah, picks it out with his own fingers. Sorry for your audience. <laughs> gross. So I hope gross. you're still not having breakfast yet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, he sleeps with women while they're in labor. He's oh, nasty. Really horrific stuff. And so. I think at one stage, at some point in that tale, they're they're kind of cordoned off on the hill of Hoth, mm. and they're the Ulsterman and Athruna, and and he's so mean for for a year. They've nothing to eat except for dirt and salt water. Ugh. And Athruna has seven hundred cows, but wow. do you think he'd give them a bit of milk? No, he's so spiteful <laughs> that he dumps it over the cliff. Aww. Yeah, so you won't. Is milk anyway? At some point, Mascagra gets involved in this story, and Connell Carnock comes along and he wants to avenge his own brother's death. Uh, who Mascagra killed them, right? It really battle. is a cycle of vengeance throughout yeah. all these tales. It's yeah, not good, no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he Mascagra they have Connell and Mascagra fight. And they both had their arms tied behind their back because Mesagegra was injured. But, you know, kind of a, to honour both um, parts right. in, the, in the fight. Connell okay. ties his hand behind his back. That's anyway, fair. he wins. He chops off Mesagegra's head. But Mesagegra kind of still keeps talking and stuff. Ah, yeah, this is a thing that happens in uh, some... Well, some Irish tales and some Welsh yeah. tales as well, actually. Yeah. yeah, and even like the blood that drips out of his head has magical properties. So he brings the head to Mascagra's wife, Uwen, and Connell tries his luck and he says, well, Mascagra said that I could have you. <laughs> <laughs> the poor woman has just learned her Cheeky. husband died and he's got like this head with anyway so she's like uh no he didn't i know he didn't or no sorry she because she sees his head she's like oh god he did that's proof right so she gets into the chariot with Connell, 
And all of a sudden, Metzgegra's head starts turning red and white and kind of having a spasm in the chariot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she realizes actually, Crummel was telling a fib. He's, he's right. not meant to go with him. And oh, it's terrible. She throws herself off the back of the chariot. Oh, the poor woman. And she dies. Yeah. So Crummel is so fed up with this head that he takes the brain out and calcifies it. And, and then it stopped talking. Yeah. <laughs> <a> trophy. <laughs> ah, man. Those tales. You really can't get enough of them. And That's I feel amazing. like, you know, after Game of Thrones, this would be great for Netflix. Yeah. To have an Irish cycle. I mean, there's enough blood, sex, and oh, yeah. whatnot in them to get a couple of good seasons out of them. <laughs> yeah. uh, but even in Europe, material, Nika, in the failure of the commentary. Ah, yes. Cracked tail, yeah, 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 and it's interesting because, um, uh, I don't know if we mentioned this before in a podcast, but the Fehler Angus is a is basically a calendar naming saints for every day, so you'd expect it to be very sort of, um, I don't know, well, saintly and holy and well behaved <laughs> and all that, but the anecdotes about some saints will really uh <laughs> make your ears uh, turn red, <laughs> yeah, so it's good reading material as well, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so that's that, a good story. That my PhD. Yeah, that's a good story for you to be translating and editing, and uh, that'll keep you entertained, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So was there... so sick of it at the end. Of oh well, yeah. Am I that... allowed to say that? Yes, you're definitely allowed to say it because I think everyone at the end of their PhD, that's when you've done maybe four or five years on yeah. the same thing, and you're only oh, yeah. reading back yourself and you know yeah. editing your feedback from your professors, and by that time, I think you're allowed to say you're very, very yeah. sick of it. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but after a break, you usually come back to it anyway. But yeah. um, I asked Christina the same thing as well. Is there what was like? Did you find anything unexpected when you started editing? Because usually editing is mm. not just about translating a text; it's also you know about placing it in its context and yeah. making it accessible well, to other people. I. That's a pretty good question, Nika. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I think. Um, and it's something that I've noticed in your previous podcasts is that so it's amazing how there's so much material that was edited a hundred years ago. So the tale that I edited um, was actually published by Kuno Meyer in 1906. Mm. And um, so the field has moved on so much in a hundred or so years um, that there's so much that can be brought to uh, a tale still brought to a new edition and yeah. um, you know there's methods are more scientific um, and you know we have to look at all the manuscript copies yes so yeah. one thing I did for this um, edition was I, I um, went back to the sources that Kuno Meyer uh, used in his um, edition of the longest version so he printed the book of Leinster copy mm-hmm and underneath uh, and footnotes, he gave um, kind of variant readings from two other manuscripts. Right. Uh, one of which he said, um, well, you can only read half of it. The rest is illegible. Oh, right. And the other which he said, he kind of fobbed off as irrelevant. Oh, I love it when scholars do that because you go, yeah. but, but why? <laughs> How can yeah. it be re- irrelevant? <laughs> So I went and I looked at, um, I think it's in the Edinburgh manuscript, um, 
Edinburgh Library um, 72140. And when I looked at it, it wasn't actually illegible at all. Oh, really? <laughs> was he? Do you think he was just getting lazy or he couldn't access it? Or I think either he had somebody else transcribe it for him mm. or maybe, yeah, he didn't, maybe... I don't know actually. No. Yeah. I'm sure there I'm sure there's a story there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I was able to transcribe all that and look at up um, there was another copy and I actually found that they were independent of the Book of Leinster and and they actually had some text that wasn't in oh, the Book very of Leinster. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, so it was like trying to create a, a stemma. <laughs> Ooh. Or a family uh, a kind of a line of transmission. Yeah, uh, how the texts came down to us in those manuscripts and work backwards, yeah, um, and kind of figure out which who was copied, copy if one was copied from another, yeah, and you can do that by looking at kind of shared innovations or sh- yeah, um, yeah, because these tales are all you know in handwritten manuscripts, so they're all slightly different. So from yeah. this kind of little what we call scribal errors, you could always. Yeah. Well, you we, we try and trace them to you know each other, but so many manuscripts yeah. have been lost as well that it's often very hard to yeah. make a definitive stemma. Yeah. Oh God, yeah, yeah. it's hard. And you, I was lucky; there was only four manuscripts in that. I don't know how people do it with. I know. Yeah. Especially 20? if you look what? like yeah, if you look at critical editions of like classical texts mm. where there are hundreds of manuscripts, I wouldn't even know where to start. <laughs> Hats yeah. off to anyone who does that. Yeah, so. it would be nice to have hundreds of uh, of copies of Irish texts. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's not. But uh, one cool thing about it was, like you said, you're focused on one text, so one story or yeah. tale or whatever for that period of time. You kind of forget that it's coming from you know somebody wrote it down yeah yeah and it's in a book and what else is in the book (laughs) yes (laughs) oh yeah I think yeah that kind of led into other areas then actually that led you more to the in the direction of codicology which is sort of and paleography I suppose the study of the manuscripts yeah themselves and the and the, the handwriting in them yeah and looking at yeah how how did it end up in that manuscript why did they choose it to put it in looking right, at manuscript yeah. context as well yeah um so for um one of the versions um it's very short it's only on one page of a manuscript but for five years i only looked at that one page oh wow <laughs> but i kind of you know coming towards the end of the phd i did grow curious what else was in there and uh so this was in the book of value common mm. or 23 and 10 whichever one wants so those yes in 1575 and i found you know oh there's actually lots of little things in there that haven't been published or edited and and so on so that kind of made me more curious and, and see what can be done with those texts and mm. um, so my research kind of drew me away from editing or well i finished the phd in the thesis mm. but kind of wanted to move on and edit other material as well um so yeah that's what i did for the o'donovan scholarship oh yes because you're now the bergen fellow at the uh, school of celtic studies but before that you were an o'donovan scholar at the school yeah uh yeah so you're uh, you're level up uh, as it I, were yeah yeah so lucky <laughs> yeah so your current project is is um well for the o'donovan you looked at the manuscript 
as a whole and these bits of pieces that were yeah. unedited in them. And uh, and what is your current project? So my current project, it all feeds off each other. Ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all kind of building blocks, you know. It's a great mm. thing about curiosity-led research, isn't it? Yeah. You, you I really want to, you know, do this and you figure that out. But then you also have more questions that you want answered and so you kind of it's a snowball effect <laughs> yeah 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 um so i had for my o'donovan i edited um a series of short texts in the book of ballycrumb and, and that really opened up my eyes to codicology in that the book of ballycrumb was always thought to be uh, disorganized unbound nobody oh, knows how it'll fit back together hmm. So when it, it's in the Royal Irish Academy and um, when it was purchased by the Academy, it had been unbound. So in the 19, uh, mid 1800s, I think, uh, it was unbound and put back together again where all the vellum is at the front of the manuscript and the paper. Oh, and yes. Because after this, that. this manuscript is really interesting in a sense that it mixes vellum and paper. Uh, leaves. That's right. So usually yeah. would, uh, we would look at manuscripts and they'd be made of vellum, which is basically, you know, animal skin, some sort of leather. But this manuscript yeah. mixes paper in it as well, which yeah. is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so for years, I didn't really think about the, the book as a whole, but in in trying to figure out where these texts fit, like they're little filler materials, they'd be written at the bottom of a, a page. Um, just to use up uh, blank spaces because vellum was very expensive mm. to make in terms of time, uh, you know, cattle for in, in production and so on. Um, and uh, so I went, I don't know, it was a bit of a mad moment of trying to reconstruct. <laughs> of genius. <laughs> a mad moment of genius. Uh, and uh, oh, it was so fun. It was great fun to do. Um, uh, so I reconstructed it and just by looking at, um, I went back to the uh, academy to look at the manuscript um, and found actually there were some leaves still joined together. So you could have a, a bifolium um, but this would be cut um, to give a, a single page. Um, but in, in medieval uh, choirs, they were always still conjoined. Mm. Um, but seeing that they were conjoined still kind of gave me the building blocks to then figure out how the rest of the book fit into it. Or, you know, each choir was uh, made up and kind of text running on from one page to the next. Oh, yeah. Um, and what I discovered was that the vellum uh, leaf kind of acted as a guard for the paper inserts. Oh, wow. Um, so it's a, a basically yeah. a book cover for... Um, or, well, not a book yeah, cover as such, cover. but a, yeah, the paper paper cover? <laughs> a yeah. folder, maybe, type thing. Maybe, yeah. Kind of a stronger material. It's yeah. more sturdy. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, it raises important questions about the introduction, the use of paper in Ireland. Mm. Um, was it at a time when vellum become, was becoming more scarce? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of questions still uh, to be answered. Mm. So in looking at those texts, this is a really long-winded answer. No, it's um, great. <laughs> it's really interesting. So, um, looking at those texts in the Book of Valley Common, I, you know, they're really interesting in in terms of their transmission you find 
those texts and a couple of manuscripts in the same arrangement of that period. Mm. And one manuscript in which they're found is this massive beast of a <laughs> volume um, called, it's a really sexy name, H318. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> College Dublin. And, uh, or 1337, or, or 1338, I should say, is its new shelf number. All right. And um, in that manuscript, uh, I was looking at them and they haven't actually been catalogued very well and kind of yeah started unraveling that whole thread of well you know what else isn't done cataloged in the manuscript yeah. because as scholars so, you're dependent on a catalog to know you know what's in these manuscripts and to know yeah. if there's stuff in there that's relevant to you or that needs to be edited yeah. or so if if something is not in the catalog it's basically sort of lost to us that's it. You're, you're, the person who creates the catalogue is creating information and data mm. and, uh, you know, it opens up a whole new world for a researcher, as you say. But it's also there in case the book is ever lost. We then yes. have a record of what was there and a record, a detailed record of what the book looked like, yeah. how it was made, uh, when it was made, what texts it had and so on. So there's more, you know, to the catalogue in that sense. Mm. So the catalogue I'm talking about is um, the Trinity College Library catalogue of Irish manuscripts. And that was created in 1912 by um, T.K. Abbott. And then there's kind of additions and corrections by E.J. Gwynn. And um, so my what I started to do basically was just writing my own notes on H318 and what right. was in there you yeah know. yeah um so that basically is how i got to where my bergen project is um one of well the big book project is to uh look at the codecology of the Brehan law manuscripts in trinity college Ooh. <laughs> 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 and, and you look a bit terrified now and that's probably because yeah. uh, law texts are early Irish law texts are notoriously difficult to read Mm. Uh, but like I suppose modern law texts are very difficult to read to people because they use a lot of jargon and you know they're written for people who were supposed to know what they're about mm. uh, and they weren't written necessarily for us uh, yeah. trying to translate the them yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly uh, ignorant yeah. Uh, person. Um, yes. yeah so the the Breton Law texts are preserved in these manuscripts. Um, Breton Laws date back to the 7th, 8th, 9th century, but they're mostly preserved in manuscripts from the 14th, 15th and 16th century. Uh, we do have earlier um, copies, so I think the earliest is in the 12th century book, um, Rawlinson B502. But then there's a gap. Um, and we have, uh, in Trinity, the earliest manuscript is from about 1350. Right. Uh, and that contains a tract on bees. Oh, lovely. the manuscript. Yeah. This, and yeah, oh, it may be good harrowing. to plug it here. I don't know if we plugged it before, actually, but uh, the school has actually published um, the law tract on bees, which is called Bechvretha yeah. or Bee yeah. Judgments. Uh, so if you are curious about how early Irish society dealt with bees in the law. Uh, so what happens if your bee sits on the flower of your neighbor? <laughs> just uh, just get that book and you'll know all about it. <laughs> yeah. Um. 
Yeah, so they're amazing texts, mm. but they're often written in very cramped writing. They're heavily abbreviated. Um, depending on the manuscript date, uh, so the Bechfrethe copy is quite legible. So you've the old Irish text is written in nice big um, script. And then you get interlinear glossing where they're explaining, uh, the mm. scribes are explaining what the tract is saying. And you get commentary then written in the margins. Um, but that's from 1350. It's a completely different matter when you're getting to the 16th century. And uh, they're only, you know, at that point taking citations or little um, snippets from the old Irish uh, material and then giving more uh, uh, commentary and details mm. and those can be written on really small pieces of vellum and um, they're little handbooks um, and they're I'd love I don't know if we can put a copy up on with the notes for the oh, podcast just that'd be lovely yeah. idea yeah. they've been digitized by Anne-Marie mm. um, uh, they're up on ISOS and um, so that's really made my life very <laughs> yes. much easier and <laughs> um, so you know that you know but really what I want, my question is, what were the purpose and function of those books? That's a very important question. And yeah. um, how did they use them? Hmm. And what happened to them? You know, the, every book has a story and that sounds really stupid. But No, it you know, sounds lovely. And I feel like it should be on a mug. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm trying to get come up with merch in every episode. You know? Okay. <laughs> But every book has a story. Yes. So, like even in, in even in medieval Ireland, books had stories about them to make them cool yeah. and you know uh, increase their value. Like the one you know the one about the book of Bur book of Burrow book of Durrow. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think Colin McKeown says, "Oh well, you know all of Colin Killer's manuscripts are really cool because you can put them deep down in water." And none of their letters and none of the words will disappear off the page. That I've even pretty seen cool. it, you know, where this guy, the farmer, has taken the book and he's put, like, all his cattle are sick. He put water on the book. Oh. And, jeez, uh, the cattle are now all fine. You know, obviously, <laughs> the not book, do this. No, yeah. <laughs> the book maybe was not so fine afterwards, but... <laughs> no. Um, yeah, where was I going with this? Yeah, so yeah, the function of books. I think there's a lot has been done on, you know, big status books like the Book of Evania, yes. Book of um, Value Motion, all of that. But, you know, maybe these Brown Law manuscripts are a bit unsexy. <laughs> Because yeah, well, they're, they're also very difficult, which, yeah, and, and people get scared because they're very difficult. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I suppose. Uh, and yeah. I, so, well, obviously the material was printed by Daniel Binchy. Um, published as a diplomatic edition in the Corpus Juris Hibernica. Yeah. And that means um, he didn't really translate it or, or you know, use... No, yeah. yeah, he replicated exactly what was in the manuscript um, and put it on in on page yeah. in Latin yeah. font. And six volumes. He even himself calls it the Elephantine source book. <laughs> um, so I think of, I think it's, I have the number here, it's 2,343 pages long. Right. Wow. It's not bedtime locker side of like don't put it beside your bed to no. read. You know? <laughs> no. So like it's an amazing piece of work. And you know, he was criticized for making such a big uh, source available. I think it was Miles Dillon was like, well, you'd be better off just editing one text at a time. Hmm. But 
when he, when Daniel Benci published that vol, um, corpus, so many things came out of it. The early Irish law series, which is available on Dias Bookshop um, for sale, as you Get said. Get your copy now. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it, it opened up this whole world where scholars could go, oh, look, there's the text in front of me. I can edit that now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Same yeah. with the Bardic Miscellany, um, you know, where Damien McManus and Owen O'Reilly, they published 500 Bardic poems. Yeah, that's amazing. That are available. Yeah. It's no, uh, you know, they've done so much work to put that out there and make mm. it accessible. Yeah, um, yeah. So I would not be doing the work I'm doing without uh, Liam Brannock's a companion to the Corpus Juris Hybrid. Also available in our bookshop. Yeah, um, which is my recommended book. You asked me to recommend Oh, cool. Yes, well. Uh, so, I mean, the amount of work that has gone into that. This is another fangirl. Am I allowed to say that about you? Of course. <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, you know, it's such an important piece of work to, it provides an index to the Corpus Juris Hybrid. Mm. And uh, it's really been an invaluable resource mm. in working my way through the material but uh yeah there you go so maybe uh, because you've only just started your bergen uh yeah. yeah so maybe in five years time we'll do another podcast yeah. <laughs> or maybe in between uh yeah. to see if you can tell us more about the function of these yeah. manuscripts there's a, there's, yeah there's some some stuff that's coming out um, which is interesting i think one thing i'm looking out for is how you know these manuscripts were written in Breton law schools mm. and scribes traveled from school to school copying materials so was there a, a common practice in a yeah. certain school and yeah. putting together a manuscript did they follow a particular pricking pattern mm -hmm. so kind of pricking pattern uh, and page layout and localize manuscript yeah. or manuscripts because yeah. um, manuscripts were um uh, just to explain the reference to pricking, um, mm. um, if they if if medieval scribes wanted to lineate their manuscripts, they first very neatly uh, pricked holes in the margin so they could draw a line between the two holes and have like neat yeah. lines across the yeah. page. And they even had sort of um, so sometimes uh, these pizza slicer type yeah. prickers where you could just roll <laughs> down the page. Oh, me too. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so so yeah, pricking, I am yeah. like I have two examples where um, a manuscript that was written by the O'Daverns or in the school of the O'Daverns, Cara MacNachton, um, has this certain justification of the text. You know, just like we would in Microsoft Word, you justify yeah. the text left and right. They, it's a really unique justification of the text on the page, but you also find it in a manuscript that's written in a McClancy school. Oh, very um, cool. County Care down the road, you know, so is there has to be a connection that there's some sort of influence. Yeah, some sort of um, training in how do we. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, even in terms of polyarch in the handwriting, you know, were they only trained in writing an Irish script or was there influence from continental script as well mm. coming in if they were trained in both? Yeah. And does that come across? And you do see examples in in the um, not illumination, but the the elaborate um, initial letters yes. and yeah. decoration on the page. Um, so you know there are little clues there. Yeah. So hopefully in four years. Oh, <laughs> that'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Look forward to it already. Big, big project. But I have a 
my first catalogue is coming out in Celtica. Oh, is it? Oh, excellent. Is yeah. it the forthcoming Celtica? or The, the... forthcoming, well, it, by the time this podcast is aired, it'll okay. be out. Oh, <laughs> so, excellent. Okay, yeah. Also yeah, available in our web shop. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's, um, that'll be the first catalogue. It's the first, it's only the first 87 pages <laughs> of a volume that contains 800. Oh, wow. So there you Chantal, you're yeah. a brave woman. Well, and cataloging it, yeah, it's very, very slow work. Yeah, but but it's important. So it's yeah. a good thing that you're, you know, yeah. taking your time yeah. to go through all these pages. Yeah. yeah. So this, looking this forward. This one wasn't too bad. It, okay. it was, you know, a mixture of tales, poetry, yeah. and love tracks. So you know, shows they're they're they love their literature. Those yeah. Brown, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't just law tracks that they were copying out yeah but i am working on a different one which is a little miscellany at the moment and that's only legal citations and it's really painful that is very difficult yeah, yeah. <laughs> very difficult to do <laughs> fair play to you oh. uh, for doing all that yeah. yeah okay very cool so we're now up to speed on your current project um mm-hmm. and i think i usually ask I, I feel like at this stage, the questions that I prepared in Old Irish are somehow redundant because usually we, we touch upon all these things that I ask yeah. uh, anyway. So I would now ask you. Why would you okay. be doing that? Um, but I think we kind of we did touch upon, you know, yeah. the amazingness, I suppose, of the manuscripts themselves and yeah. uh, uh, the literature and the people behind it writing it down mm. for us but is there anything you'd like to add to it um i don't know if it's more of a, a selfless act but it's to help other people be able to go and you know look up on isos uh, a legal manuscript and be able to go and find the the description and go well look that's what that's about and, mm. I can, and of course with Liam's um, companion and yeah. then go find the other copies and and kind of open up a gateway yeah for people to do their research yeah um, and yeah. that would be one aspect but for me um curiosity yes <laughs> what the books are about and and you know I love books and I want to find out more about them. Why not? You need <laughs> uh, to say nothing more. I think <laughs> if ever there was a place to say it, it's here. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's a, a very valid reason. I think it's the reason for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, who and that's actually, I am, I'm editing a medieval glossary as well, which is part of the Bergen. I'm oh, you're very busy. Yeah. Um, but that again came out about reading into the manuscript seeing what's in there and seeing you know actually there's a medieval irish glossary with legal citations and that hasn't been published hmm. it's not in binch's corpus um, it's oh, wow. not anywhere yeah. um, and so you know to you know it's really important to do the basic groundwork as well yeah. to make material yeah. available and put that yeah. stuff out there as well that's also a point yeah. we keep coming back to uh in, in yeah the four right, episodes yeah. that we have now yeah there's so much groundwork yeah. still to be done uh, and yeah. I say groundwork in a uh, not in a derogatory way because it's no. important yeah. and difficult work uh, that's yeah. really necessary for the advancement of, of scholarship in our field. So, uh, yeah. So a call to arms here <laughs> <laughs> for all the students out there. Um, and then the next question is. 
nie als een leegen toegeschen. Um, it is not from study that you thought that up. And that is, that is always uh, to do with life outside academe. And we've heard already about your parents sort of dragging you along the Irish mm. countryside to show you castles and <laughs> ruins and all that. So I suppose that might have been an inspiration at the beginning. But uh, mm. is there anything else uh, in yeah. life outside academe that inspires you? I think it's funny sometimes you know when you, you seek your idols and scholarship and go mm. oh my god they have a life outside <laughs> yes they're also <laughs> humans <laughs> um yeah oh there's loads i mean sure i i i grew up in a family where they worked with their hands mm. they worked with my mum's an artist mm. uh, my dad is a dental technician so he's always working with his hands and yeah. making li- you know little things and my mum's always playing around with paper and so I have I do I love how things are put together how yeah. things are made you appreciate the craftsmanship art. yeah like the physical objects that's it yeah. there's a uh this artist I really love his name is Tapies he's a um um, from Barcelona. Mm. This is actually a shout out to Alexander Guillard, who's our bibliographer. Oh yes, um, also very important. Uh, yeah, yeah, cannot do my work without that important mm. source, the bibliography. Um, and he works with paper pancets. She he oh, wow. works with letter forms, um, and puts these materials together. And I think, you know, that all tells a story as well. Yeah, that's an and amazing inspiration. That's a yeah. great shout out, yeah. And I, I love, I love archives and notebooks and you know yeah. keeping a record. And I think that all kind of feeds into the curiosity yeah. I have for yeah. our past. And and also, it's important to say that there's no point in just looking at the books. You have to be able to read what's in them as yes. well. So it yeah, all yeah. kind of fits you can't in do together. One the other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, just I suppose sort of, it's so important to that these objects and texts are made accessible and mm. kept for a future and especially in this day and age agreed you know yeah. destruction yeah. of records who yeah. knows where that leads to yeah. it actually doesn't lead to a good place at all no exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah um yeah. so it's important that we or that people are trained you know mm. so uh, to read these things to have the language yeah. and understanding yeah. the history. we can continue to understand these objects yeah yeah, yeah. so it's kind of I see us as Celticists having a bigger function and um, just you know bigger role in preserving our past so we can understand our future kind of thing you know that's yeah. the tweet yeah yeah. <laughs> no, yeah yeah no I I hear you yeah yeah very good and then now I suppose well the next question you've kind of answered that as well as Kesht. To what place is your road, which can be the future plans of the field uh, or mm. the future plans for you yourself as a scholar? I don't know if you want to say anything about that. Um, I can't tell it just be about me. <laughs> but I will take a job if it's going. <laughs> yes. In five years. I'm doing my Bergen first. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, oh God, I mean, there's so much scope written there for... Yeah more work in our field yeah i think the basic future of our field is so much more needs to be done so please yeah. continue to fund us yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're not there yet yeah i think um 
yeah but I mean I'd love at some point when I have all the the groundwork done and the codecology of the manuscripts to put them up you know maybe have accompanying choir structures oh, on wow, yeah. beside um catalog descriptions and make those searchable yeah online uh, and put that beside an image from ISOS you know which is interoperable and could be all restructuring manuscripts but I mean that's all for another yeah for the funding next, project that's the future <laughs> plans yeah exactly but that's why we ask about future plans yeah. to hear about your yeah. dreams for you know new projects yeah. and then the final question is uh, the moment of truth for our next podcast which is Kesht in Vil Anamkharalat who <laughs> is your soul friend your Anamkhara <laughs> so who will you nominate to put on the hot seat for, for uh, next month <laughs> I am going to nominate Andrea Palandri um, who is an O'Donovan scholar at the institute and I've been working with him for the last two years and he's he's working on an edition of Marco Polo um, which is, a, well, an Irish translation of the Marco Polo text, but he's also interested in uh, manuscripts and, you know, how they're made and codecology, and we've kind of been working Very on cool. uh, egging each other on, which is a great thing at the Institute, uh, yeah. you know, talking about your research and um, working on this Tygo Reardon uh, fella who's a <laughs> professional scribe, and, uh, yeah, we're both trying to work out something about him at the moment and maybe yeah hopefully publications will come with it oh very yeah. good very good yeah. cliffhanger there as well okay so andrea palandri <laughs> is up next yeah. on our fifth episode i feel that calls for a celebration as well maybe next month uh, the fifth episode is a yeah a milestone yeah so yeah uh, well done yeah oh thanks and you too thank you very much <laughs> for coming on and explaining your research to us i well, think we can all say nianza because uh, we now well. understand this <laughs> Yeah, so thank you very much, Chantal. And uh, thank you, everyone, who uh, took the trouble to find us again on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you're listening. And I hope uh, to see you again in our next episode, the fifth one. Thank you and goodbye. Okay. And by night, code colors. <laughs> <laughs>